You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, I'm Kyla Lee and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. Um, today we have a very special guest on the program. It's Grant Gottgatru. He is a retired corporal with the West Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP Integrated Road Safety Unit for the Lower Mainland. He has so much experience in driving and the law. He has uh, the record, and it'll probably never be beaten, for issuing more excessive speeding tickets in a year and in a career than any other officer. He was several times named a member of Alexa's team, which is what we heard about last week with Cash Heed, the award given to police officers for giving out many uh, impaired driving charges. And he now works for the defense as an expert witness and providing expert testimony, reviewing police evidence in driving cases. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. So I asked you here today to talk a little bit about speed estimation and uh, police evidence in court related to speed estimation, because I know you're very familiar with this area. I am, yes. Okay, well, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit first about sort of your qualifications and your training? Well, my training goes back to 1987 when I was on ride-alongs with the RCMP Portman Freeway and I got introduced to uh, radar back then uh, with uh, some of the officers I rode with and they let me use the radar gun and and showed me how it worked. Uh, When I got hired in 1989, um, that's when I started using radar on a regular basis and I got qualified to operate it and I got qualified to um, instruct on it as well. Throughout the 1990s, um, I developed an expertise in both uh, use of the radar and laser uh, speed detection systems as well as visual estimations. And throughout the course of my career, I kind of worked myself into a little niche without realizing it, just through (laughs) all of my uh, training and experience. Um, I think I think you told me a story about sort of the first excessive speeding ticket you ever gave and what impact that had on you? Oh, when the legislation changed in 2010, yes, I, I, I really, I didn't impound for the first few months because I'd pulled a few people over for excessive speed in the fall of 2010. But I just, it's just like, well, I can't take the car for seven days. That just seems, that's like, that's quite an impact. And then when I finally did impound the first car for seven days, it was like, wow, this is quite, uh, um, for me, it was like, wow, this has quite an impact on people. And then I just started doing it. Because uh, when I got on the job, there was no excessive speed. The speeding tickets were $75. There's no such thing as excessive speed. Did so, you, like, because you've had all this experience sort of from then till now, did you feel that speeding or driving, even drive any driving offenses, decreased as the penalties got higher? Absolutely not. If If you were to ask me... Grant, did you have any impact on the overall speeds of vehicles in the lower mainland? I think there was a, there was a couple of people that came up to me after the fact and said that the ticket that I gave them for excessive speed changed their lives and they don't speed anymore. One guy actually was tearful about it when he told me that. And I believed him. I had no reason to doubt him. He was being honest. Yeah, but then you pulled him over two weeks later? Not, <laughs> not at all. No, actually, he uh, he had survived a bout of cancer. Oh. And um, so he had a couple of uh, big events that occurred in his life, including obviously losing his uh, luxury uh, car for seven days from me for excessive speed back in West Van. He was doing... Uh, 170 in a 90 zone so um but no people will continue to speed in the same spots that i would pull people over for excessive speed they continue to speed and 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 um so i i still had a job to do and i did it very well and and through the course of my career i just got very good at um my job as a traffic officer i got good at um um teaching and instructing and developing an expertise in the field of speed enforcement through um, both visual estimations and through using speed measuring devices, that being radar and laser. 
what's the sort of what's the difference between laser and radar? I mean, I, I promise I know, but uh, maybe our listeners don't. Uh, radar works on radio waves, and laser works on an infrared beam of light. Okay. In, in its simplest form, um, laser detects your speed in uh, through time over distance. It does a mathematical calculation of your of your vehicle. Uh, whereas radar uh, um, t- obtains your speed by a change between the transmitted and received uh, frequency of that radar beam. Kind of like how bats do echolocation? Yes. Okay. All right. So basically the police are just a bunch of bats. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you had nicknames, though. You had nicknames as a police officer, right? Myself? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I had several nicknames. Some I can't say on the air here. Um, <laughs> they called you Darth Radar? Darth Radar was uh, a nickname that was given to me when I got my uh, impound for number 2000 for excessive speeds. And that was in um, September-ish of 2016. <clears throat> now, was it was it always radar that you used? My preference was radar because um, I did a lot of moving mode. Right. Uh, and we don't have moving mode laser yet. Um, but uh, no, Darth Radar was my favorite nickname, and that was actually given to me by uh, Constable Jeff Palmer of the West Van Police. He was our media guy. And he coined that term for me, and uh, it's... Really good, actually. It's quite a, it's, it's, it's fitting. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, when I talk to people about you and the services you provide, I tell them, oh, you know, they refer to him as Darth Radar, and it's actually been very effective, I think, as a marketing tool for you. Yes. Um, what about, okay, and they, there was a name, I don't know if I should say this, but there was a name, I don't know if I've ever told you this, that I heard from some impound operators. They called you the traffic Nazi. You know what? That's funny because that was actually a nickname that was coined for me back in my uh, days with the New S Police back in the 1990s. Of course, now nowadays it's got such a, I mean, it's always had a negative connotation, but now right. it's really bad. And uh, you're German. Well, I'm German and that's probably where it came from. But, you know, you, I'm, I'm in no control of, of my nicknames. People want to call me the Robot Vulture. <laughs> Or they want to call me Darth Radar or Traffic Nazi. You know, those are pretty lame, uh, pretty tame compared to some of the stuff I've been called. Now, the Robot Vulture, you actually got that as a result of an interaction that you had with somebody at the roadside. Yes. Yeah. And um, I guess we could listen to a little clip of that interaction. How do you fucking get off like a fucking vulture standing there fucking trying to catch me? What do you mean at 46? You're going to take my fucking car? No, the government is. You're a fucking robot for the government. Okay, that's fine. So, do you want me to call you a cab or is there someone you can call? No, I want you to answer my questions. Are you a fucking enforcement for the corporation or are you a police officer? Are you doing justice? I'm enforcing the law, yeah. What the fuck? Who did I harm? Well, you don't have to harm anyone if you're going more than 40 over the limit. It's mandatory. What do you mean it's mandatory? You're a blind fucking robot that you do this? You're fucking ruining my fucking life right now, you piece of shit. How am I ruining your life? Because you're enforcing stupid policy that's meant to enslave us. Who did I harm? There's There's a fucking bullshit sign there. There's nothing I can do about it. Why are you standing there like a fucking vulture, you piece of shit? Okay. So you don't don't need a cab? You're not going to call someone to come pick you up? No, I want some answers if you're a police officer. Well, no, all you're doing is yelling at me. I'm not going to respond to yelling and swearing. Okay. Well, I'm not. I'm trying to get you to answer the question. No, you're calling me a vulture and swearing at me. Well, you are a vulture. Let's let's accept that. I'm doing my job. Well, yeah. Are you okay with your job? Of course I am. I got to pick up my daughter from school. Okay. A little kid. There's not much I can do about that. The law is you, mandatory. What do you mean? The law, do you even think about what laws you enforce? I've already said it's mandatory. Do you, answer the question. Do you think 
about the laws that you enforce. That's what I'm sworn to do. I'm sworn to do the, the enforce the laws of the country. Even if it says you have to kill me, shoot me, no, kill no. your own brother. No, no, no. You guys are. What are you doing here from West Vancouver? This is not even your just jurisdiction. The integrated road safety unit. So how am I being unsafe? No, it's not unsafe driving. It's just excessive speed. How am I being unsafe? It, it's not the charge is not unsafe driving, sir. No, what is the charge? You're stealing money from me. Excessive speed. You're stealing money from me. You're extorting your money. Well, I'm answering your question. I'm, ask, I'm, I'm asking you. You are extorting money from me. No, it's not me, sir. It's the government. You're the one standing here. Well, I just read the ticket, but the fine goes to the government. What? Where's... I didn't even... What? 60? Like, what do you yes, mean? Yes, sir. As soon as you come off the bridge, there's two 60-kilometer-an-hour signs. One on the left-hand side of the road, one on the right-hand side of the road. Yeah, and what was I going? 106. So you're going to take my car? If it's more than 40 over, the government says I must take the car. It's a mandatory impound. I couldn't give you a break even if I wanted to. And this is on radar? Yes, sir. Radars aren't even reliable anymore. Nobody uses them. Oh, no, they're still in use. They're not reliable. They never hold up in the court of law. Well, they have for me. In your t What do you mean they have for you? Nobody... You're going to take my car on a fucking... 30-year-old technology? You don't even have the decent to use laser on me? No, it's a new radar unit. New, what, they're not even reliable. They've been shown to get the cars on, like, not even close to you. You're supposed to be using laser. No, we can use radar or laser. Give me my fucking shit. Well, I will, but I just want to make sure that you, you're going to phone someone to come pick you up, or do you want me to call you a taxi? Well, I have to call my lawyer first. How do you maintain your composure as an officer in that type of situation where somebody's being just so abusive to you? Oh, been married twice, <laughs> raised four kids, including teenage girls. Believe you me, there's nothing that you can say to me that I haven't already heard. Okay. Um, it, you know, seasoned traffic officers are thick skin. We've heard it all. And yeah. really, at the end of the day, yeah, some police officers will react to being name called or sworn at, and they'll they'll overreact because that's why these people are doing it. They're trying to goad the police into a confrontation. It won't work with me. It just it, it never did. It was like whatever. I know. But, I always tried to goad you into a confrontation outside the courtroom, and it never right. worked. <laughs> no, no. I'm I'm not quite the Perry Como of policing, no. but it's it's shocking when people would see the type of abuse that would be hurled at me, and I'd be just sitting there going, okay. Okay. You know, I just let them go. Just let them rat and rave. Here's your ticket. Then they tended to get even angrier because they weren't getting a rise out of me, but it's like, well, like I said, you're not going to say anything to me I haven't already heard before. Okay, so shifting back to traffic enforcement, yeah. you've got these tools, like the police have the laser or the radar device. They yes. have those tools, but they can't use them just on their own for enforcement purposes. Is, am I right about that? Well, in BC, and just a little teeny tiny point of clarification, yes, while I do do, um, you know, I do provide expert uh, testimony to the defense, I've had Crown Counsel reach out to me, as well as other police agencies and other officers to this day still reach out to me and ask me for advice when it comes to, I've got this guy stopped here, what should I do? Or I've got a guy for an IRP, what should I do to make sure I make I don't make a mistake? So I'm not... Uh, I'm not one-sided. I believe in fairness and, and, and making sure that the best evidence is presented before the courts. So, because um, some people like to think, oh, you're a big traitor and you're <laughs> defending people. And it's like, that's not what I do. I consider myself an officer of the court still. And for me, it's all about the evidence. Yeah. And I guess like it also makes the police look better when they're being careful to do things correctly and when they learn from their mistakes and uh, respond appropriately to them. Absolutely. There's a couple of agencies that, that have reached out to me because they want me to come and give their um, their members teaching, the, teach them uh, proper ways to do uh, IRPs or, or proper ways to write tickets and whatnot. All right. <laughs> but... Um, but getting back to what you're saying, no, in, in there's different rules across the country regarding the use of radar and laser. Uh, in in the province of BC, um, part of tracking history, when it comes to assigning a speeding ticket, mm -hmm. <clears throat> there's a there's a 
you want to call it a chain of events in, in tracking history, uh, uh, the visual estimation is first. Then the radar or the laser conf is just a confirmation of the visual estimation. So how do you make a visual estimation then? Because that I don't understand. Like I'm standing there at the roadside watching vehicles go by. How would a person be able to say how fast they were going? Well, everyone has the ability to look at a car and going and go, uh, he's going way too fast. We've all done it. You've think, done it. I think you overestimate my ability to put a number on it, though. <laughs> well, this is the thing. We can all, like the general public, even a 15-year-old can go out there and go, that guy's going way too fast. The only difference is for the police, we have training on how to assign a speed to that visual estimation. And that comes, it, part of that is through uh, the, well, obviously training, because when you're on either the radar or the laser course, there is a visual estimation component to that course um, where, you, the, um, where you go out with the instructor and everyone has a sheet of paper and, you know, certain cars are, are identified and write down what you think the visual, the speed of that vehicle is visually and then it gets confirmed on either the radar or laser and you get to see how how far off you are or how close you are are there people who just can't do it well i have heard some um members in court um some traffic members too where they're we call it a plus or minus your visual estimation is plus or minus Whatever. a certain amount of kilometers when yeah. compared to radar or laser now with Seasoned traffic officers, I expect to hear somewhere around plus or minus five kilometers an hour visual estimation error rate when compared to radar or laser. Yeah, I think the best I've heard in like running a trial in traffic court has been plus or minus three. Yes. That was uh, Sergeant Braithwaite. Yes, well, that's the same as mine as well. <laughs> Sergeant... Can it get better than that? <laughs> Well, do it, you guys like stand around after your shifts and compare visual estimates? Well, it is a it is a perishable skill, <laughs> right? So for me, now that I've retired, uh, the first thing I did was I went out and I bought a couple of radar units so that I can keep relevant, and I still teach uh, radar and laser courses as well. Um, but as I was saying, I have heard some traffic officers on the stand say that their plus or minus their visual error rate plus or minus ten kilometers an hour. Yeah, I hear that often. And, and I cringe when I hear that because that's like, that's really, really, that's not a very good plus or minus for an experienced traffic officer. I would expect someone coming out of the Justice Institute or, or, or fresh from depot to have a plus or minus of 10 kilometers an hour. You could go out right now and I could um, have you visually estimate 20 vehicles and your average would probably be plus or minus six. Wow. Okay. Just so you know. Okay. So, but I might take you up on that. <laughs> sure, anytime. Um, but but it's part of tracking history. So the visual estimation does come first, and then the radar and or or the laser reading, whatever you're using. And it, it's the case in BC though that you can't have just a laser or a radar reading on its own without a visual estimate to, uh, estimation to corroborate. Well, that is the current training curriculum in British Columbia. I have copies of obviously what I've been teaching for over 20 years, but I also have a copy of the RCMP's uh, laser course um, PowerPoint, and it says, and it's the same thing there for tracking history. It's um, target within. Um, operating range, then your visual estimation, then confirmed speed measuring device speed. Right. Um, so the, the spe speed measuring device, the laser or the radar, is really yes. just a confirmation tool. It's corroborative. Yeah, it's a corroborative tool. Um, I've, you know, because like I said, in other places in Canada and the States, you don't need a visual estimation. And there's books uh, and, and, there's books all over down in the States how to beat a radar ticket. That's because you don't need a visual estimation in a lot of the States down there. Okay, so tell me why then is a visual estimation so important? Because both radar and laser can give incorrect readings. How? Well, radar will give you interference-induced readings both mechanically and electrically because it works on radio waves. So um, radar will pick up anything that's moving and and it can pick up electrical interference we've all heard elect we've all experienced electrical interference in our cars when we're driving and the radio's on 
and we go and suddenly the radio signal gets really crackly because there's overhead wires of some sort. That's electrical interference. We've all heard that in our cars. Right, sure. Well, radar works on radio waves. So radar also will get uh, an interference-induced re reading from anything electrical that'll give a reading on the radar. Okay, but have you ever actually seen that happen on yes, the radar? Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, um, in the in my days in New West, we had KA band radar. We had our Genesis KA band. KA band is is the top one right now that you can have in, in police radar in BC. There's X band, K band, and KA band. Okay. And the KA band is just a faster frequency. That's all. It's still the same principles, but um, the waves are more squiggly. It just goes a lot faster. Okay. It transmits and receives <laughs> I don't know how you would faster. draw them. I'm trying to visualize it. Yeah, it's squiggly, yeah. Yeah, it's, okay. It, yeah. <laughs> it's like someone having a heart attack and their, their ECG is all over the map. But anyways, right. um, and um, whenever my air conditioning was on when I was running stationary radar, it always gave me a speed of about 17 on my radar. And if I turned the air conditioning off, then the speed would go away. Hmm. So as I said to um, John Daly a little while ago, um, all radar readings are unreliable without a visual estimation. Okay, is that also the case then for laser? Laser can also um, get uh, readings that are not reliable. Um, there are some studies that have done, and I've been reviewing some studies where um, you can get um, what's called and I'm having a bit of a brain fart here, <laughs> but basically it's a, a laser sweep. They call it a sweep error, um, where it was showing that if the laser's moving, you can actually get a, you can get a speed off of a stationary object. And I've actually seen that before when I've done the fixed distance zero velocity check, okay. uh, which you understand and the other people out there that are listening have no idea what that is. Well, some probably do. Okay. <laughs> Where it's if at a you're, fixed distance, at zero you, velocity. Exactly. <laughs> you're supposed to get a zero reading because you're targeting a stationary object. But if you're moving and you can't help but have tremors, we all have tremors, yep. you can get a speed. Well, you know how much coffee traffic cops drink. They're probably all shaking all the time anyway. We can't help it. It's a coffee <laughs> that keeps us up. Also, if you're tracking um, a vehicle and you can't hit it on the front end because of there's traffic in front of it and you're and you're hitting the side of the vehicle, the, the hitting the side of the vehicle will actually cause that beam, the, the, the laser, I've seen the studies, it's really amazing, to um, basically calculate the speed of the vehicle as it's traveling, at the, the whole side of the vehicle, and the speed difference has been an increase of, of some of 30 miles an hour. Wow. Difference compared to what the actual speed is. Okay. So again, that's why the visual estimation yeah, is Yeah, must so have important. a visual. And, okay. and that's why it's important here in BC. The visual estimation is first, followed by the radar reading or the laser reading. Okay. So you have then, say I get a client and I call you and he's alleged to have been going 220 kilometers an hour mm -hmm. in a 90 zone in his Lamborghini. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you've seen that and dealt with it and uh, on both sides of the fence. If the officer comes to court and testifies that their visual estimate was 215 and the radar or laser reading was 220, is he done like dinner? Well, I guess, well part of it depends on the experience of the officer. Okay. If the officer works in an area, um, I would expect that type of experience, for example, from officers that work on the Coquihalla. Right. Um, if an officer that works in the lower mainland municipal department um, probably has never seen a vehicle going over 200 kilometers an hour. Right. So if they're giving a speed uh, estimate. But of, what, what, even like with a season member though, what yeah. could go wrong with the speed estimate? Well, I think there's a bit of realisticness to it, right? Like I've had some people go by so fast that I've gone, I've never seen a car go by that fast before in my entire career. It was going really fucking fast. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, and, I, and, I, and, I've, and I've had that in court before. And I said, Your Honor, I, the, I've never seen a vehicle go that fast before in my entire career. So it had to be some astronomical speed. He had to be well over 180. Uh, and he was 190. Um, and all boils down to your experience as an officer. 
Right. Right. So we're all used to estimating speeds of vehicles up to about 120, 140, 150. It depends where we're working. The, the freeway patrol guys, they're going to be, they're used to having high, high speeds. Sure. Yeah. I've had lots of so like Portman RCMP members yeah. with speeds in the 200s. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would, so for me, I'd be comfortable going, yeah, that's probably pretty good. Um if their visual is there and then the, and their and the radar or the laser reading is there. But um, the, the key point is they have to have the visual. If they don't have the visual, then there's going to be a problem. But there are ways to screw up a visual. You saw this in a recent case you had. Well, th- there's a difference between visual estimations in the daytime and visual estimations at night. Uh, it's very different at night because obviously it's dark. And yeah. with darkness comes shadows. And uh, when I do a visual estimation, uh, I want to see as much of the car as possible. So I can visually estimate a car at 400 meters away from me if I can see three quarters of that car. For example, they're coming down a hill towards me. I could do that easily in West Van if I was standing on the Taylor Way overpass looking at vehicles coming towards me from 15th Street, there's a hill. And you're watching these cars, they're 400 meters plus away from you, but you can see three quarters of their car. You can see the front, you can see the entire top of their car and the side of their car. Um, oh my God. You so, just you just answered the biggest question ever, which is why are police always doing speed enforcement at the bottom of hills? It's not to be unfair, it's because it's easier to do the visual. Well, no, in that particular spot, it's because the speeds out there are outrageous. We don't do a lot. Of, I'm just saying that, I'm just using that as an example for the distance part, because... If you're doing a visual estimation of a car at 400 meters away from you on a flat road, all you're seeing is the front of that car. And it's hard to really give that a good visual if all you're seeing is the front of the car. You And, and it's even worse at night. At nighttime, you cannot do visuals as far away that you can do in the daytime. Okay. Right? Uh, as for location and where officers want to set up and do their speed enforcement, I'm like, wherever they want to go is up to them. That's the beauty of the job. Right, because the people that are speeding um, on the freeway are generally going to be speeding everywhere, anyways. There are some people that are entitled and believe they can go any speed limit they want, <laughs> and that's fine. But couldn't this, they just move to Germany? Well, yeah, I always say the same thing to people. Listen, we all speed. Everyone speeds. Yep. Right, but with the excessive speed law, keep it under forty. Yeah, go thirty nine kilometers. You go thirty now. over, you're <laughs> gonna get a that. speed. In th- yeah. <laughs> if you go thirty over, that's fine, but you won't get impounded. Just you know. Grant Gakatru, everyone, advocating for speeding. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, the traffic JP says the same thing. Well, all speed, even I speed. It's like, yeah. yes, Your Honor. <laughs> would you give him a ticket? Like if you had pulled over one of the JPs when you were an officer, would you have ticketed them? I gave out a lot of warnings. Yeah. You like did. people are very surprised. You're, the, prob- you're not the right person to ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I, I, I've given out a lot of warnings before. People think, oh, geez, uh, he impounds everybody. You know, he gives everyone tickets. Actually, no, I gave out a lot of warnings. There's a lot of people out there that got warnings from me, even for excessive speeds. I, I stopped a, a family coming from uh, the airport. They just landed. They were heading home to Kamloops. And I stopped them for excessive speed in New West. And it's like, well, I just gave him a regular speeding ticket and sent him on his way, right? So... There were people I didn't impound for speeding, excessive speed. There were other people I give warnings for stop li- stop signs and red lights and, you know, not everyone got a ticket. Okay. Not looking for fanfare. I'm just saying it's so a statement how, of fact. How many would you have had then if you had ticketed everyone you could have? Did you ever keep track of that number? Of my warnings? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I can say of all my excessive speeds, there was maybe be, maybe be about... Now, I had over 2,100 impounds for excessive. I would say um, 10. 10, okay. 10 or 12 that didn't didn't get impounded for um, for one reason or another. Right. But you, you weren't very, you didn't discriminate about who you impounded. You'd impound the priest. Oh, You'd yeah. The- well, yeah, the law, was, the law was the way it was written. And some people can go, well, the law is... Bullshit. Can I say that? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Okay. I said the F word earlier. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> um, well, it's like, yeah, well, uh, as a police officer, you don't get to pick and choose. It's like I was in traffic and the enforcement for speed for excessive speed was it was a mandatory impound. So the place where I exercised discretion was in court. Right. 
No. And, and your discretion in court, as I recall from um, being opposing counsel against you numerous times, was very good. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't run very many trials for excessive speed. And the only time I ran excessive speed trials was because um, either there was some aggravating circumstances or the person just didn't want to deal. Right. And um, and I haven't lost a speeding ticket in traffic court since 1997. So, and I haven't lost an excessive speed since the early 90s. And that one I lost was simply because it was two motorcycles that I got for excessive speed. And the judge convicted one for excessive, but the other one he convicted for regular speeding. And the Motor Vehicle Act actually has a provision that allows traffic court justices to convict for regular speeding, even if the excessive speeding isn't proven. Correct. So it's it's not like other offenses where, you know, if you are ticketed for running a red light, but turns out the light was yellow, you can't be convicted for yellow light. That's right. But for the speeding, they have this, you know, this strange little provision, which is... I think kind of unfortunate because if you're going 40 over, the fact that you are going one kilometer and over is easily proven. Yes. And, I mean, it's sort of plain as day usually if you're traveling that fast. Well, that's why I loved when, when people would get on the stand for a speeding ticket because I'd ask them a couple of questions and they'd convict themselves and I'd just sit down. <laughs> so, okay, so... People you found overall, it didn't decrease the rates of speeding, even as they increased the penalties. Um, what, like, what would you recommend about speed laws to the government if you had the chance? If you knew they were listening, what would you tell them? Well, part of the problem is the cars are faster now than ever before. Sure. Okay. But they're also safer. Well, that's part of it as well. They're safer, but you've got minivans now that have the same horsepower in them that muscle cars did had in the late 60s. Hey, man, those people driving the muscle cars in the late 60s have to drive their kids to soccer. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So um, cars are safer. They're faster. Um, There are some speed limits that are um, low. Too low? Right. Uh, Some of the locations, I understand why. Um, you know, if there's intersections, uh, um, or, or you're going into a business district where there's lots of commercial vehicles, they don't want you doing 120 through there. So they slow you down to 60. Um, you know, for me, it's like, well, part of the problem that we have in the province of British Columbia is that, uh, it's far too easy to get a driver's license. That's the big bone of contention I have. It's like, yeah, I know that there's... You know, I, I just, I don't care how it works in other countries. I don't care in how it works in other provinces. But in the province of BC, um, you can get your driver's license as easy as getting a toy out of a box of Captain Crunch. <laughs> and I've seen it. And I've seen that's, it. That's not fair. I failed my first driver's exam for speeding. I also lost my license for speeding when <laughs> I was 17. I'll just to let you know, I did get a speeding ticket when I was a police officer. So it's not Did you like- really? Were you on shift? No, I was on the Coquihalla. How have I never heard this? How fast were you going? Uh, apparently, I was over the limit. <laughs> and my speedometer was off. Were I didn't, you, were I didn't you realize speeding it. excessively? I was on the Coquihalla in a 110 zone, and I was doing 135, although I had my cruise control set at 119, and I was shocked by that. When I went back, when I got back to the office... I took a radar unit out with me and I checked my speedometer and it turned out that, yeah, when my got over 100 kilometers an hour, my speedometer was off. Oh, interesting. And you can, like, radar units, were you using, like, a stalker, like a dash-mounted one? How were you doing it? No, I was using a handheld. I was just pointing it out the window. Okay. So you were measuring the... I was measuring train. my own vehicle, yeah. Yeah. So, the, so I was basic. yeah, so... The, the low Doppler, if you will, was my car. So that right. was the speed I was getting on my on the radar. Hmm. Chief didn't know I borrowed the radar unit for a few minutes, but that's now okay. He does. <laughs> this was in the mid-90s, a statute of limitations, long gone. I can't fire you now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I should have you on here to talk about all the other stuff you did that you probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, I was actually well-behaved. Yeah, I know. You know? I know. Okay. Um, well, ultimately, I guess, what would a person need to know if they were going to challenge a ticket and wanting to undermine a visual estimation of their speed? Well, is, is, is the answer higher you? 
They'll hire you and then hire me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> visual estimations are an art, and the officers are trained in them. There's nothing wrong with asking them on the stand, you know, what training they've got in visual estimations and how they do a visual estimation. And, and uh, nighttime visual estimations are more difficult okay. for obvious reasons because it's dark. And there's shadows. You can't really see what stationary objects those vehicles are going by. All you're looking at is a set of headlights. And that's really hard to get a speed, especially at four or 500 meters away from you, when all you see is a set of headlights. Okay. Um, so, and that's the same stuff that I teach when I teach the radar and laser courses. It's, there's, a, there's a visual component in there for the officers. So they're being taught how to do visual estimations as well. But it's part of the tracking history in British Columbia. So if you get a ticket and it's just a radar or a laser reading, then that can be challenged. Right. And if you get a ticket and it's just a visual estimation, that too could be challenged. Yes, it can be. But the chances of you getting convicted are, you know, if, if the officer has, all the officer has to do if they've written, and, I, and I've successfully convicted for visual estimations alone, is the officer just has to spend a little bit more time uh, qualifying themselves as to their training in visual estimations. Okay. But, but the problem is then, then the disputant gets on the stand and any traffic officer who's worth their weight in gold will ask a couple of magical questions and it's done. I won't make you give those away on the program. I won't. No, I know you won't. You'll tell me <laughs> off the air, right? Of course I will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Grant. Oh, my and pleasure. How can people reach you if they want to get in touch with you to talk about a ticket they've received or an IRP or other lawyers that want to retain you to help their clients? How can they reach you? Well, I generally do work strictly with um, law firms, both Crown and Defense, um, because... Um, you know, I did have some people reach out to me and say, oh, please, please help. What, what do I do? Um, and it's like, well, I'm sorry. I, I, I work as, a, as an expert witness for um, lawyers. For lawyers. That's, that's who I work for. I don't work independent because um, I, I just don't think it's appropriate. But okay. I've, I've had people ask me what I should do, and, and then I just simply referred them to a counsel. Go, go talk to a lawyer. Um, so... But I'm in, I'm in the process of having a, a website designed. Oh, okay. So eventually that would be the easiest. Is that by Brazen Bull Creative? Apparently. Yes. yes. <laughs> All so. right. So, and your website is, do you have a web address? Well, yet? it's going to be uh, a mouthful. It's going to be gotkatrueconsulting.com. Um, okay. Okay. Although Can I think, you spell that? I think DarthRadar.com would be better. But, well, it's my last name. It's G-O-T-T. Uh, G-E-T-R-E-U, uh, consulting.com. I am on LinkedIn uh, where some people do reach out to me. And really, at the end of the day, if you can't if you can't figure out my name, just Google Darth Radar. And the story that uh, Gord McIntyre did from the Vancouver Sun will be right there. And there's my full name. Perfect. And if you are still looking for Grant's contact information and you can't figure it out or reach out to him, you can always call me uh, at Acumen Law Corporation 604-685-8889 and I'm happy to put you in touch with Grant for anything you need. Thank you again, Grant, for coming on the program. This was a really interesting and wonderful discussion about uh, speed estimation, speed measurement, and the fallibility of speed measurement devices. I know that we'll have you back to talk about more related to probably drug-impaired driving, drug recognition. There's so much insight that you can provide. So thank you very much. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, and now we're moving on uh, to a discussion with Paul Doroshenko about Bill 17, which is an act to amend the Motor Vehicle Act in British Columbia. It's the long-awaited, much-anticipated legislation that BC has finally introduced to deal with the problem of drug-impaired driving. Paul, thanks for coming back. Yep, my pleasure. All right, so what were your initial reactions to the bill? Well, first of all, they released the bill on the same day they released the legislation that facilitates uh, the sale of marijuana and the regulation of, of cannabis in British Columbia once it's decriminalized, legalized by the federal government. So 
on the one hand, uh, it kind of looks like they tried to slip it in without anybody noticing, and it's true, there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion about it. There was a couple of articles uh, in the newspaper. One of them was, uh, uh, you were quoted, Kyla. Uh, but uh, hasn't been a whole lot of debate about it, so, you know, they've tried to slip it in. And the other thing is that they've tried to slip in some changes that have absolutely nothing to do with drug-impaired driving. Yeah, there's been a, a complete overhaul of the administrative driving prohibition scheme. So to understand this, you have to know that there are two types of uh, alcohol-impaired driving 90-day prohibitions in the BC Motor Vehicle Act. One, of course, is the immediate roadside prohibition, which uh, I, I talk about a lot. We've talked about a lot. I'm in court on a lot. Um, those are the, the IRPs that start immediately, 90 days, 30-day vehicle impoundment and monetary fines. A little less known and less discussed is the administrative driving prohibition. Tell us about that. You have more experience. I, I can tell you all about that because <laughs> I, I personally considered myself the king of uh, ADP disputes at some point because I used to do so many of them. Um, so 90-day driving prohibitions are issued to a driver who provides a sample at a detachment into a approved instrument and the sample indicates that they were over 80 milligrams uh, of alcohol in 100 milliliters uh, in their body within three hours of the time of driving. And so it's issued to uh, drivers. Typically at the same time, they are issued a uh, promise to appear for a criminal case. Uh, it can also be issued to them if they refuse to provide a sample to an approved screening device, although that never happens anymore because uh, it's basically the same legislation uh, with respect to immediate roadside prohibitions or re refuse to provide a sample to uh, an approved instrument. So if a person's taken back to the detachment and they say they're not going to blow or they, whatever, they obfuscate or they're alleged to have obfuscated or tried to make it difficult. So in those circumstances, the um, driving prohibition would be issued under Section 94 of the Motor Vehicle Act instead of the immediate roadside prohibition uh, sections. And the driving prohibition begins 21 days from the date it's served on the driver. So they walk out of the police detachment with a 24-hour driving prohibition and then they've got this temporary license that lets them drive uh, and then 21 days later, their car turns into a pumpkin and they can't drive unless they disputed the thing within seven days. So the ADP scheme was adjudicated a long time ago to determine its constitutional validity and it was upheld. And part of the consideration at the time was that you could continue to drive for this 20, uh, 20 21 day period up until the, um, until the uh, decision was rendered by the superintendent of motor vehicles tribunal. Right. It, it kind of almost respected that way that it went along with a criminal charge mm. that in your criminal case, you had the right to be to be assumed innocent. And so long as you disputed your ADP, you were assumed innocent until it was the officer had proven his case. Sure. And when it went to the consideration for constitutional validity of the IRP scheme, one of the things that the government did was always point out that there's no criminal case going along with it. This is an independent thing. Therefore, you didn't have to consider anything like uh, innocent until proven guilty. You didn't have to, any of those considerations. Uh, but of course, with, uh, with uh, ADPs, um, you know, they are tied to the, to the criminal case. You've got a criminal charge that comes usually at the same time, right? So... Yeah, but the government has snuck in some really, I think, disturbing and, I, I mean, underhanded changes to the ADP scheme with this alcohol legislation, rather than, or with this drug legislation, rather than actually just creating a drug-impaired driving scheme, they've overhauled the ADP scheme and in the process of doing so made substantial changes to what ADPs look like. So that temporary driver's license that you were talking about, Paul, that 21-day period, that's gone. Gone. Yeah. So now, now, despite the fact that it's tied together with a criminal case, which is what led to the Alberta legislation having been found unconstitutional, I might note, um, it uh, it is now uh, an immediate prohibition starts right then, except in cases of drugs. Yes, the drug ones start seven days later, which makes no sense because you get seven days to dispute it. Um, and then as soon as you're, you dispute it, basically it takes effect. I don't know why they picked a seven day time period. There's no discussion that explains why seven days for drugs and no days for alcohol, um, why the difference is necessary. I, I cannot fathom why this was done this way. And it's just going to create more confusion because people struggle already with the timelines. It's 30 days oh. to dispute a ticket. You get to used to get 
get to drive for 21 days. They have to render a decision within 21 days. You got to file within seven days. You can drive for seven days. Uh, I mean, it's just going to make it harder and harder. There's yeah. going to be people who are charged with driving while prohibited as a result of it. And police who are going to be, you know, advising people of when they can and can't drive and misinforming them because of, of the way that this has changed. I mean, we see this huge de-skilling of police officers as we move towards more and more administrative enforcement of impaired driving cases. And this is just another step in that direction. Interesting, too, was uh, another thing that we haven't really discussed much in the office, but they changed the standard for what a police officer uh, must think when they're issuing one. So the police officer used to be the police officer issuing an administrative driving prohibition had to have reasonable and probable grounds to conclude. Um, you know, basically to conclude that the person was over 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters in the previous three hours or that they refused to provide a sample. So it was, it was a, you know, a, a standard on probable grounds based on, on a reason. It uh, never, but it, it never mattered up until very recently whether the officer did or did not have reasonable and probable grounds because it was never a ground you could dispute uh, in the ADP hearing. It was never anything that the courts would consider on judicial review until the recent Court of Appeal decision from Gregory, which was one of the many constitutional challenges to the IRP scheme, where the Court of Appeal said, well, wait a minute, if the officer didn't have grounds to issue the thing, if the officer lacked the grounds to make the demand or whatever the case may be, you could seek judicial review of the officer's decision to issue the prohibition. So some of the IRP scheme was found constitutional on the basis of the fact that you could always judicially review the officer's opinion. But now they've lowered the standard for the officer's opinion from reasonable and probable grounds to simply grounds to believe, uh, which is, uh, I don't know, a suspicion. Grounds to believe, believing it's on like the basis not of even, something. It's less than a suspicion. It's not a suspicion. It's not a credibly based probability. It's an entire new beast unto itself. Grounds to believe. What type of grounds? I mean, suspicion is grounds to believe something. So it's spectacularly tactical of the government to run these appeals this way, make these arguments, and then change the things that they argued after the fact in the next version of the legislation as they as they alter things to basically sneak things past the court. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you try know, and sneak it past us. Yeah, and it's creepy, creepy uh, and uh, tactically creepy and kind of frightening that they can do it. And they're probably going to get away with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was asked about the IRP scheme when it was first introduced, if they could get away with this. And people kept saying, oh, this has got to be unconstitutional. And I thought, you know what, they'll probably blow this by the courts. And sure enough, you know, it's years later and we have an IRP scheme and they've made it more and more unconstitutional with each legislative change. Well, and who's going to who's going to question them about it in the legislature? You have uh, you have the Greens who are going to support it and there's very few Greens who have seats anyway. And then you have the Liberals who desperately want to see the NDP fail. And if they see anything that would be characterized as a failure in any of these bills, they're going to let it pass and then point the finger at them. They're not going to sit there and question them and try and get them to amend it. I, I, I don't know about that. I don't, uh, I don't, I, look I, at the behavior of no, Andrew no, Wilkinson no, no, lately. No, no, I don't know. I, I just don't think that they're that thinking that far ahead. I think they'll look for short-term political benefit, but I don't think there's any short-term political benefit in uh, attacking legislation um, that uh, is aimed at the drunk driver. So no. I don't think that the, the liberals, everybody's going to vote for it. Yeah, so. there's nothing to gain from defending drunk drivers. There's, there's nobody. There's nobody in the legislative assembly who's actually going to sit down and look at it and see what creepy things they're doing. The only person once upon a time we may have thought would do that is the very person who tabled this bill, Mike Farnworth. Mike Farnworth, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I, it's disappointing. And it's it's so sneaky and uh, and creepy. It just, it, it just gets me down. I guess the thing that gets me is that I would be surprised if our members of our Legislative Assembly in BC even understood the implications of it. Basically, the, the, the law is written by bureaucrats uh, and lawyers in the government who have a, a fairly um, frightening plan uh, to subvert and get around the Charter of Rights and basically to blow one past the Legislative Assembly and then blow it past the court. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to happen. And it's, uh, it's discouraging because it certainly does not inspire you to have confidence in the justice system when this is what you see. And, I, I you know, I'm having less and less 
confidence in the justice system all the time as a result of this. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see a more in-depth explanation of all of the changes, you can check them out. They're on my blog, kylalee.ca. I'm sure Paul will be posting a post on uh, vancouvercriminallaw.com. That's the Acumen Law Corporation website outlining those changes as well in the coming days. Um, if you want to get in touch with us to talk about them, if you're an MLA and you would like to actually hear our concerns Gee, we'd about love it. to explain it to you. Oh we did get God. to explain it to you. some of the NDP members uh, in previous versions, they used to phone us. Uh, Kathy Corrigan, I, I talked to her. I talked to Mike Farnworth. I think I talked to David Eby about some of the problems before. Now, of course, uh, I would imagine those are deaf ears. They're but, not going to call us. <laughs> uh, if, somebody, if someone's actually interested in knowing about the uh, flaws in the legislation and some, some of the creepy things about it, they could phone us, I suppose. We, we, we would talk. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't have any secrets about our views of, of this legislation. Oh, oh, one thing I wanted to say was somebody recently um, on, I, it might have been on Twitter or something, was attacking us saying, oh, yeah, you're just, you know, you just want to fight this legislation. And you, you guys are just going to keep secret about it and then, you know, use it later. Uh-uh. We offered to talk to the to the politicians at any time. We've mentioned many times that we would happily explain problems about the legislation uh, as they were considering it and give them some pointers. Uh, yeah. There's been police officers over the years who have contacted us to ask us questions, and we've helped them with some I've things. That, you know, the RCMP. Uh, but um, you know, we want people to do it right, of course. But uh, nobody's uh, nobody's reached out to us, despite the fact that. Um, they have, uh, I understand, a team of people there basically to, to deal with our office and the challenges that they know we're going to bring. And speaking of our office, we work at Acumen Law Corporation in Vancouver. I figured this was a good time to sort of wrap it up. Sure, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us at Acumen Law. It's acumenlaw.ca or vancouvercriminallaw.com. 604-685-8889 is the phone number for our Vancouver office. Um, or you can find us on Twitter at Van Crim Lawyer or at IRP Lawyer for myself. Yeah, and... Uh... Kyla's been nominated in the Canadian Lawyer Magazine annual awards and, and she's been nominated in the category of, what is it? Young Influencer. Young Influencer. Yes, well, the yeah. top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada. Yep. Well, I think you're certainly, uh, you're certainly in there. Uh, you'd probably be in the top five, I think. But in any event, you're especially with your, uh, with your, your TV show, uh, <laughs> cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court but didn't. And I understand people are watching that across the country. In any event, um, the, uh, if you're a lawyer listening to this, we would encourage you to uh, go to Canadian Lawyer Magazine and uh, vote for Kyla. Thanks. And we'll see you next week for another riveting episode of Driving Law. 